backs up the Bible, but a historical perspective that, that fits in with the Bible. And, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of different things about archaeology uh, that we're talking about in our teen Sunday school class right now, actually, that um, uh, is, we're doing apologetics, why the Bible is true, why we can trust the Bible. And archaeology is just one of those things. The Bible is not a history book, but where it addresses history and where it talks about history, it's 100% accurate. It's not a science book, but anything that it mentions about science, it's 100% accurate. And many times, uh, especially through archaeology, uh, people have tried to disprove the Bible. Oh, there's no, there's no evidence. There's no mention of David or Solomon or any of those people anywhere in the historical record. This is just allegory. It's just uh, something to, to get Israel fired up and excited about going to battle, talking about King David and everything else. But he's just a mythological figure. And now they're finding all kinds of stuff about David and Solomon and, and uh, you know, uh, mentioning uh, him being the king of Israel and, and, and all of this other stuff. Uh, same thing is true with so many different things. And they th- always think, oh, we got it. We found the one thing that disproves the Bible. Or there's no evidence of this, so we can't, you know, there's, there's no way that this can be true. We don't see anything in history. And then they find something in archaeology buried under layers upon layers upon layers of dirt and, and, and civilizations and everything else that just proves the Bible again. I don't know why they keep trying to say that the Bible is not true. Uh, they're always proven to be wrong. Um, but uh, one of the places that we were supposed to go that we did not go was Shiloh. They say Shiloh in, in, um, in Israel, um, but there was a skirmish or a threat or something like that. That's why we didn't end up going there. Um, but they found, they, f- they found it. They, they, know, they, al- they already knew where it was at, but they've been doing a lot of excavation work. And I actually showed it to the teens this morning, uh, a video, about 20 minutes long. And if you want to see it, I'll send you the link to it. It's really, really interesting. They've actually found the gate that Samuel, uh, I mean, not Samuel, Eli died in when he found out that the Ark of the Covenant was, was taken. And uh, he fell off the seat backwards and broke his neck is what the Bible says, Right. And they found that exact gate where they believe it happened. And, and uh, they know exactly, because for 300 years, the tabernacle was in Shiloh. And they found the exact spot where that tabernacle was. And uh, they've, they've dug all the way down to the, to the base layer now and, and uh, have all the evidence. The exact dimensions that the Bible mentions are there. Um, you know, the two-to-one ratio where it's, you know, the, the holy place and then the holy of holies. They found all, they found um, uh, I mean, 300 years worth of bones from the sacrifices. No, no pork, no pig bones, right? Because pig was, was uh, not acceptable. Uh, it was an unclean animal. But they found all of the other uh, the bones to, to, that, that, that back up the evidence of that being a place where many, many, many sacrifices were done. And not only that, but all of those bones were disproportionately divided. The right side of the animal was to go to the priest. That's what they were allowed to eat. The left side was sacrificed and, and uh, burned up. They were allowed to eat the right side, and they found a disproportionate number of right side bones uh, that were not burned up. They were eaten and, uh, and buried there. So, I mean, just so much evidence. And not that somebody was trying to disprove the Bible by saying Shiloh never existed, but once again, and this, I mean, this was uh, not that they just discovered this, but uh, this, this report was only a week ago that they've actually, you know, uncovered all of these things. And the guy who is the lead archaeologist on that case or on that, uh, on that, uh, on that site 
is a, is a strong Christian. You can tell by his testimony and the things that he says. But he said, I was shocked more than anybody else. I wrote a report before we started uh, really getting down into the digging that the tabernacle was probably at the top of the, of the hill. And he said, all the evidence does not prove that. We found the evidence of it right here. And, and just, uh, it's amazing how the Bible story is always backed up. And Caesarea Maritima is, is one of those when it comes to uh, a lot of the things that are mentioned are actually still visible there. And um, all of it got buried under. One of the things, and, and we'll start seeing a lot more of this now as we start moving into the Jerusalem area and things as well. Uh, the Crusaders, when they came through, uh, destroyed a lot of stuff. Um, and so they left, a, they left a lot of the foundations, but then they took a lot of the building parts. That, so um, you'll see Byzantine ruins, uh, which is from about the 1100s uh, A.D., um, and they built castles everywhere, but they took all the material that was there from all of these places and used that as part of their castle. So old pillars that were used to lift up, you know, or, or, or that were part of a portico on the front of a, a temple or something like that. Those pillars were all knocked down. They would just take them and they would integrate it into the walls of their, of their castle. And uh, so you can see evidence of that all over the place uh, there, and, and Caesarea Maritima is one of those. But let me, let me uh, remind you about this. Caesarea Philippi is located about 25 miles north of, the, north of the Sea of Galilee, right in the foothills of Mount Hermon. And this is, uh, we, we talked about that one last time. It's mentioned several different times. That's where Peter uh, made the claim that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. And, and of course, uh, Jesus essentially established the church. He said, upon this rock himself, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That area and, and that temple area was known as the gates of hell. And so he's, he's basically saying all of this wickedness and this vile, everything that you see here cannot even prevail against this church that, that is going to be established. And so that's Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Maritima is basically, and I'm going to show you a picture of it, but to see, to see where this is at, Caesarea Maritima is basically in the bottom left corner of that map, just below uh, where the map runs out there is where Caesarea Maritima is at, and that's right there. So, uh, Maritima means by the sea. Now, the Bible does not call it Caesarea Maritima. It just calls it Caesarea. But to distinguish between the two of them, in fact, uh, this is the wrong map up here. Let me pull this off of there and show it to you. Um, uh, so, so here is, uh, here's Mount Carmel. We've talked a lot about all of that stuff. Here's Joppa, all right? Caesarea Maritima is uh, uh, right here. And... Um, about 25 miles from Joppa, I think 35 miles from Joppa, I have it written in there, I, I, I need to not get ahead of myself, but um, we're going to talk about that, it's going to be important when we come to it, so here we go, Caesarea Maritima is here, Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi is all the way up here at the top by Mount Hermon, Caesarea uh, Maritima is here, Joppa is here, and I'm going to show you some pictures of some of that stuff, we've talked a lot about all of this, so here, and, and I don't have the other map up there <clears throat> to give you a quiz tonight, but... Uh, sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea, all right? And this is kind of your central area there. It does continue on down past that, and we've, we've talked about all of those things <clears throat> in the southern half of, in, in, in the wilderness of, of uh, uh, the wilderness of Zin and, and all of that down there. We're not going to talk about that tonight because, uh, or for sake of time, but the area that we're talking about is right here and right along that coast. Jerusalem, um, for your reference, is, is actually... Um, Hang on. Yes, across from Jericho, which Jericho is right here. Jerusalem is right there. There we go. So 
We're going we're gonna to get, we're making our way to Jerusalem, all right? And eventually, so, so a lot of that stuff that happened in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem is where all of those crusaders came. And so a lot of that stuff in that area was eventually um, not turned over, but turned into a lot of these crusader castles and everything else. And so you're going to see a lot of evidence of that. Let me just point a few things here. Um, Caesarea is actually in the area of Samaria, and you know, we think of Samaria as being the place that Jesus went and talked to the woman at the well, and it is. It was a city, but it was also an area there in Israel. And you can kind of see how those areas are, are mentioned there. The Bible actually uses a lot of those areas when it's describing where this place is at. And um, I, don't, I don't have it right here in this passage, and so we'll, I think we'll look at another one a little bit later that kind of mentions it, but kind of gives you the, the, the areas, Decapolis or Samaria or uh, um, you know, all these different areas that, that are located around those um, cities, essentially, because you see, in fact, on the bottom of this, you can see the city of Samaria right here, okay? So most of them did have a city that was, that was called by that name, but then, but then it was also an area. So um, to go back, Caesarea Maritima is on the coast of Samaria, right on the Mediterranean Sea, and that's what that means. It's in the area of Samaria. So it's mentioned 15 times in the book of Acts. That's, that's a portion of, uh, of the city of, of Caesarea and what we're looking at. And uh, you'll know, hopefully, by the time we get done, what you're actually looking at there. It's, it's a really, uh, uh, it, it all revolves around Paul. and all revolves around everything that happened there with him and, and several others. But what I want to do tonight, for the most part, is, is go through the Bible passages that mention all the different things that happened there in Caesarea. Because there are events that you're very familiar with, you just maybe didn't know that that's where it happened. Uh, and, and so to show you these pictures of, of where these things happened at the same time. So the Roman 10th Legion was stationed at Caesarea. And a centurion, you know, hopefully you're going to start to recognize some of this, but a centurion, and if you think about a century, um, but a centurion was, a high, was highly respected. He was not a political appointee. He was somebody that rose through the ranks. And so he was highly respected because he was a fighting man. He was a soldier. He got there because of his, uh, his dedication, his hard work. And, of course, then they ruled the century, a group of 100 men, with, with iron discipline. Well, Cornelius was a centurion who commanded 100 of these soldiers. He was saved and he was baptized here in Caesarea after he heard Peter's preaching. And we find that in Acts chapter 10 and verse number 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea... There's the place. This is where we're at. So here's, here it is, uh, Caesarea. <clears throat> a centurion of a band called the Italian Band, a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. He saw in a vision, evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius, when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? He said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. So Caesarea Maritima is actually located about 35 miles north of Joppa. It's just a screenshot of Google Maps. We went to both places. Um, but Caesarea Harbor there is where Caesarea Maritima is at, right on the Mediterranean Sea, and then on down to Joppa, which again, this, I mean, it's a small thing, but it's, 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 it's something that makes a difference, right? It says, 
uh, now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodges with Simon, whose house is by the seaside. Well, you know that this is the Joppa that the Bible is talking about because it's right there on the sea. And um, I'll show you in just a second the actual place that it's at. But uh, there it is a little bit closer up so you can see it. Uh, the, what you're looking at right there on the far edge of the map is the Jordan River. And it's so zoomed in that you can't even see the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. Uh, that's how zoomed in this map is. So it's really not that long of a distance. Uh, if you look at it by driving, it says it'd take you 48 minutes uh, to get from Caesarea to, uh, to Joppa. Uh, they walked, but they also, especially being that, that he was sending some of his soldiers down there, probably would have gone down by chariot or horse or something like that. So it wouldn't have taken him very long to get down to Joppa. But uh, to remind you about Joppa, Joppa was where Jonah was when he got, uh, when he got a ship to Tarshish to run from the Lord. Remember that? He was in Joppa. God sent him to Nineveh, and that's actually right there in the city. Um, I mean, a giant whale, you know. I've never seen a fish that actually looked like that, but uh, I guess that's the best they could do with what they wanted it to, to, to give you the impression, because people know that that's what happened in Joppa. Jonah was there in Joppa when God told him to go to Nineveh, and instead of going to Nineveh, he jumped on a ship and uh, was going to go uh, to, Char- to Tarshish. And so... Uh, this here, though, is the home of Simon the Tanner, at least traditionally. Um, you know, there wasn't anything that they found papers inside that said this is the home of Simon the Tanner, but that's what they think. And if you're actually looking at that, <clears throat> um, you can't see it from there. Uh, well, maybe you can. See the sign that says for rent on the left side, and you see the, the, uh, the sky that's right above it? The reason you can see the sky there is because that's the water. If you were to go out the back door of that house, you'd be right on the water, essentially. So you can't really see that from there, but that's, that's, that's basically what, what, um, what you're looking at there. This is, this is actually Joppa, uh, from Joppa, looking up to Tel Aviv. And Tel Aviv is, is the capital of Israel right now, or at least, uh, you know, Donald Trump recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, and, and so uh, many of them want that to be the capital. Uh, but Tel Aviv is the official capital um, of, of Israel right now, and that's where a lot of your major, um, not industry, but, but your big high-rises and all of that stuff are there in Tel Aviv. And from Joppa, I mean, literally, it's just a walk around the corner. There's a little park there that we were in. And, of course, what you're looking at also is the Mediterranean Sea there. Beautiful, beautiful sea. Almost, almost makes you feel like you're in the, the Caribbean or something. <clears throat> the, this the color of the water and everything else. I mean, um, when we were there, it was not warm. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't cold, but it wasn't warm. And so it didn't feel like the Caribbean um, when we were there, even though it looked like it. But you can just see how, how, how big that area is. So follow that past, uh, go past Tel Aviv and just continue on up the coast, and eventually you would get to Caesarea Maritima, or Caesarea as the Bible calls it. Now, Acts chapter 10, a lot of things happen in between there. Um, uh, you can continue on to verse number 9. Peter was actually there, and he has a vision. And all of a sudden, these guys show up and say, hey, Let's go talk to Cornelius. We were told to come get you. So he goes back up there. And in verse number 45, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so it was there in Caesarea, uh, because, and I'm just trying to give you context without reading the entire passage, but what happened is, um, the centurion, Cornelius, sent some men down to Joppa. He found Simon Peter in the house of Simon the Tanner, 
and he went back up with him to Caesarea. And while they were there at Caesarea, this is what happens. And so, uh, verse number 46, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God, then answered Peter, can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they, them, prayed they him to tarry certain days. So Peter is there in, uh, in Caesarea. Now, another one that lived there is Philip the evangelist, and you know several things about Philip, but let's go over to Acts chapter 21. He lived in Caesarea with his family, including his four daughters who were prophetesses. Um, in Acts chapter 21 and verse number 8, And the next day we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea. We entered into the house of Philip the evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. And the same man had four daughters which did prophesy. Now, this area right here, and you're going to see a little bit more of this in, in what we're talking about in, in just a little bit, and, and hopefully it'll make a little bit more sense. But what you're looking at is actually the ruins of, of the city area that was on the, on the, um, on the coast. Uh, Caesarea was actually a very, very large city, uh, 125,000 people that lived in Caesarea, which if you think of comparing that to Nazareth, which had 400, or even Jerusalem, which only had about 15,000, Caesarea had 125,000 people living in it. So what you're looking at there is just a tiny, tiny portion of uh, actual Caesarea. So to say that Philip lived in that area, probably he didn't. Uh, he would have lived somewhere in the area behind that where a lot of the houses would have been and everything else. This is actually, and I'm going to show you this in a little bit, maybe not tonight, um, but this is the um, uh, Cardo Max, uh, what do you, cardio, what is it? Is it Maximus? Cardio Maximus? It didn't sound right, but Cardo Maximus? I don't know. Either way, this is the main street. <clears throat> The main street where all the business was done and all of that. And so uh, it doesn't, Cardio Maximus doesn't sound right. Uh, cardio? Uh, I, can't, I can't think of it. I have it in there. It's there. We'll, we'll get to it eventually. And uh, what's that? Yes, they did. They did. And that's one of the, one of the, one of the things that let them know that it was a Roman city. Uh, I'm going to show you some pictures of what they think it looked like reconstructed and all of that stuff. That's what I'm saying. I don't know if we're going to get that to, to that tonight or not. Um, but Philip the evangelist lived there. And then, of course, in Acts chapter 8 and verse number 40, Philip was the one who went out and led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. And in Acts chapter 8 and verse number 40, it says, But Philip was found at Azotus. <clears throat> and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. So he went down there, was, uh, led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ, came back, and on his way back, he preached at all those places, and then eventually he got to, to his house, which, again, the Bible doesn't say that in Acts chapter 8, verse 40, that that was his home, but you know that from Acts chapter 10, and so we put those together, and there he was in, in Caesarea. Now, in the, it was in the theater at Caesarea, and this is a really interesting story. Turn over to Acts chapter 12. Uh, Herod Agrippa I, Acts chapter 12 and verse number 19. And when Herod had sought for him and found him not, he examined the keepers and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and there abode. And Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon, but they came with one accord to him, and having made Blastus, the king's chamberlain, their friend, desired peace because their country was nourished by the king's country. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration 
unto them a speech. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory. And he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. But the word of God grew and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took, them, took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So Paul was back and forth. We're going to talk a lot about the different things that Paul did there as well. We're, we haven't gotten there yet. But uh, very, very interesting here that uh, this is the theater. And I'm going to show you the theater in, in a little bit as well. But he was sitting in that theater when he failed to give God the glory. He was eaten of worms and he died right there on the spot. Uh, but he was the grandson of Herod the Great, which we're going to talk about Herod the Great. He was the one that actually built um, Caesarea Maritima. And Herod the Great was known as the master builder. He was just a, uh, one, of the, one of the best in history. And uh, so many of the things that Herod the Great built 2,000 plus years ago are still there today um, just because of, of the type of, of work and type of architecture that he did. But here is, um, he was, Herod was the grandson, uh, Herod Agrippa was the grandson of Herod the Great. That little spot right there that's, that's blocked out is actually where the royalty would have sat in that theater. So very likely that spot right there is where Herod Agrippa was eaten of worms and died because he gave not God the glory after he gave his speech. Amazing thing. But Paul was sent from Caesarea to Tarsus after the Greeks tried to kill him in Jerusalem. Here in Acts chapter 9, verse 29. And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him, which, when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. So, um, because Paul was preaching boldly, uh, there is a, by the way, that's, uh, I'm going to uh, have some more pictures to show you, but there's, there's maybe a, a, a little bit better example of what the entire thing would have looked like. You can see how how far back it just it would have spread and just kept going back there. 125,000 people would not fit right in that little area, uh, but it just kept going on behind that. But um, obviously, Paul, uh, was his life was threatened many, many times, right, because he was preaching the gospel. And this is another one of those instances. He's just preaching the gospel. They want to kill him, and so they got him out, got him to Caesarea, um, and, and then from there they sent him to Tarsus. Paul, in Acts chapter 18, in verse number 22, when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and saluted the church, he went down to Antioch. So here he is. He's visiting that church at Caesarea at the end of his second missionary journey. Um, and again, if you're not paying attention to it when you're reading through the Bible, you could skip right over this and not even think twice about Caesarea, right? This is the place. This is, this is a real place, and this is where he was. And so uh, Paul visited the church at Caesarea at the end of his second missionary journey um, in Acts chapter 28 and verse number 1. The next day... We that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea. And we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. So he visited the home of Philip at the end of his third missionary journey. And again, this is, they're just, it's all back and forth right in that area, right? Jerusalem, Caesarea, I mean, it's in, in all the areas in between. <clears throat> um, Galilee area. Uh, Dead Sea area, all of that. So that whole area would have been areas that they went. And of course, that being right on the Mediterranean Sea, we're going to talk about some things that uh, Caesarea, that Herod did in Caesarea, that made it such a, such a uh, great port. Um, but so many things came in and out of the port there at Caesarea. And so Paul 
would go up to Ephesus and Corinth and all of these other places and then make his way back there because it's a whole lot easier to jump on a ship and make your way back to the coast than it was to walk all the way around the Mediterranean Sea to get there. So um, all of these things that the Bible talks about are very uh, small details that are very easily missed if you're not aware of where Caesarea is and, and how it's laid out and everything else. Acts chapter 24, verse number 27. After Paul was arrested there in Jerusalem, he spent two years imprisoned in Caesarea. Uh, and it says in Acts chapter 24 and verse number 27, But after two years, Portius Festus came into Felix's room, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. And so in Acts chapter 23, uh, a couple of verses, a couple of pages, a couple, of, a chapter before that, verse 35, who, when they came to Caesarea... And delivered the epistle to the governor, presented Paul also before him. And when the governor had read the letter, he asked of what province he was. And when he understood that he was of Cilicia, I will hear thee, said he, when thine accusers are also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's judgment hall. So <clears throat> this is likely the building. This is from 1928. A lot of the stuff that was there in 1928 is not even there today. Um, they've done some rebuilding on some things, um, but in 1928, um, um, several different people actually came through and, and realized that, that it would be a, a huge value to document a lot of things there in pictures to see the different things that, that are, uh, you know, in, in, because they, they, they noticed that some of them were being, um, uh, were being destroyed by the weather and different things. And so, they, they took pictures of them, so they have some of these pictures from the 19, late 1800s, early 1900s of things that are no longer there today, and so uh, no guarantee, but this is, this is a possible location of the building that Paul was held in for those two years when he was in uh, Caesarea and, and being held in prison, and so it's possible that Paul wrote some of the prison epistles in Caesarea during the two years that he spent in prison there, and if that's the case... Again, we're not 100% sure, but if that's the case, then that's the place where Paul wrote those, those letters from. We know that he was in prison. We have the prison epistles. Some of them were written in Rome, and he said that. Others, he didn't say exactly where he was, but being that he was in prison there for two years, at the time when he was doing all of his missionary traveling and everything else, it's very likely that that's the place that Paul was when he, uh, when he wrote a couple of those prison letters. And so then, it was also at Caesarea that, that uh, Paul appeared before Felix and Festus and Agrippa. And I'm going to give you a little bit of snippets of these things. I'm not going to read that entire passage, but if you, uh, you want to turn over to Acts chapter 23, we'll get there in just a little bit. As far as uh, looking at some of these other different things that happened there in relation to Paul standing before each of these men. And, uh, of course, they were very interested to hear what Paul had to say. Um, and, uh, you know, just the accusations and everything else, and they let Paul speak for himself, and Paul did speak for himself, and when he got up there, he gave the gospel, and uh, it was Agrippa who said, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Felix was another one of those ones who, who was moved by Paul's words and moved by the gospel, and uh, all of that happened there at Caesarea. So this Agrippa, the one that was there in Caesarea, was uh, Agrippa II, the son of Agrippa I, and a great-grandson of Herod the Great. He was the last of the Herods that sat on a throne in Israel. Eventually, they were overthrown. But here's another thing that, that um, often is overlooked as well. We think of Pilate 
in one context, Pontius Pilate was the one who condemned Jesus to death by saying, you know, my hands are clean of this whole thing. You do with him what you will, right? But Pontius Pilate was uh, at Caesarea Maritima, and he lived in luxury and splendor as a Roman governor in AD 26 through 36. So think about that time period, right? <clears throat> if Jesus was born in 4 BC, which, you know, you'd think it would be zero, but walking everything back, you know, the time, the way it could be, I mean, <clears throat> you got to remember that BC was not counting down to zero. Everything that we know about BC is all looking back. And so, uh, you know, AD uh, or, or 4 BC is, is roughly the time when Jesus was born. So AD 29 was likely the time when Jesus died. And if you think about AD 26 through 36, Pontius Pilate would have been the one who was the Roman governor during that time. And here's another one that uh, people have tried to use to disprove the Bible and, uh, or at least say that there's, there's inconsistencies in the Bible. Pilate was the one who condemned, condemned Jesus to die in spite of the fact that he said, I find no fault in this man. And I'm not going to take the time to go back and look at that, but just a reminder of who Pilate was. In 1961, a limestone block that had Pilate's name on it was found at Caesarea during a reconstruction of the theater. I'm going to show you a picture of the theater and what it looked like when they actually found it. It literally is just a mound of dirt. Uh, they excavated all of it, and, and a lot of it has actually been rebuilt with the bricks and blocks that were there uh, based on what everything that they have information-wise it probably looked like. But while they were doing a reconstruction of the theater and basically dismantling all the stones that were stacked on top of each other, they found this stone that mentioned Pilate's name. And written in Latin, and this is so... <clears throat> This is a replica of that stone. The real stone is actually in the Israel Museum. And um, we're going we're gonna to go through the Israel Museum, and I'll show you a bunch of really neat stuff uh, that they have in the Israel Museum. But the, the Latin inscription said, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judah, made and dedicated the Tiberium to the divine Augustus. And basically what that means is he built the Tiberium as a way to honor Augustus as a god. And so this stone is the, the first and only mention of Pilate from an archaeological source. And it's currently unknown which temple that came from, so we can't say for sure which one was the Tiberium that, that uh, Pilate actually built to honor, uh, to honor him. But this is, uh, this is really interesting. And I know it's probably maybe a little bit hard to read, but this is, uh, this is from a book that was written in 1998. One of the most interesting things about this inscription is that Pilate is called a prefect. Most historians, based on Josephus and others, have called him a procurator. But we know now that Roman governors of Judea were not called procurators until later, during the reign of Claudius, which was 41 to 54. That's not that much later, so it'd be a very easy mistake to make, Right? Um, this inscription confirms that Pilate was indeed a prefect, and the New Testament accurately labels him as governor, not a procurator, which is very interesting, right? It, again, backs up the Bible, and it's only a couple years, right? 26 to 36, and this is 41. So in 41, they did start calling him that, and that would be an easy mistake for somebody like Josephus to make because he would not be thinking about oh, well, this was when Pilate was there, so he was actually not a prefect. He was a procurator. That's what they called him when Josephus was doing his writing, 
right? But the Bible got it right and called him a governor because that's what the governors were called in A.D. 26 or, you know, 36 when, when all of that was written. So, again, not that they're saying, oh, the Bible's wrong, but again, it's a small detail, but it, it perfectly backs up what the Bible said about Pontius Pilate. And uh, now archaeology, even though that's the only one, the only one uh, that mentions Pilate, it gets it right. The Bible, it backs up the Bible. The Tiberium at Caesarea was a temple that was built by Pilate, and this is the one that they think probably it was, but it's, it's, it's unsure exactly what stone that building was associated with. But the worship of the Caesars was called the imperial cult, and that actually turned into a very big thing. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But Luke chapter 3, turn over there, because that actually agrees with Luke's statement that Pilate ruled during the lifetime of Tiberius. And again, the Bible is not a history book, but anywhere it mentions history, it is correct. And even though there might be some supposed inconsistencies, it's not the Bible that's wrong. It's always found to be archaeology or historians or whatever. But Luke chapter 3 and verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and that's where, again, it calls him the governor, which is correct, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and of the region of Trachonitis and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene. By the way, that's a perfect example of what I was talking about when, it, when the Bible gives you the whole area of where it is and exactly what area we're talking about so you can pinpoint the location and everything else. But it agrees with Luke's statement. So then uh, turn over to Acts chapter 25. Because Paul was there for two years, and from, uh, uh, from, the, from there, Paul sailed to Rome, where he stood trial for his faith. In Acts chapter 25 and verse number 8. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar, have I offended anything at all. Um, and actually, well, I was going to read verse 11. We'll continue. But Festus, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, answered Paul and said, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem and there be judged of these things before me? Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. For if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. Well, he was a Roman, so he had that right. He could, he could appeal unto Caesar, and it's essentially... It's essentially saying, I'm appealing to the Supreme Court, and there was nothing that they could do about it. And, you know, you read through the passage later on, essentially Festus said, I was going to let him go, but he wanted to go to Caesar, so now he gets to go stand before Caesar. Um, but Paul was saying, listen, if I've done anything that, that I deserve to die for, then kill me. I'll die willingly if I deserve to, but I haven't done anything wrong. You have no right to, to, to try me and do all of this other stuff, put me in prison and all of these things. I'm appealing unto Caesar. And he said, all right, to Caesar you will go. And that's exactly what happened. So um, there's so many things that happened there at Caesarea. Now I want to show you some of, the, some of the places within Caesarea where some of these things happened. And so location of Caesarea Maritime, it was originally a Phoenician coastal station called Stratos Tower uh, after the name of a Sidonian king. Tyre and Sidon, does that ring a bell? Tyre and Sidon were farther up the coast, and of course they got 
uh, uh, wood from there and lots of different things that they brought down from, from there. And, and a lot of, uh, the Bible talks about the Sidonians basically as being master, uh, master woods, woodworkers um, and, and uh, different things up in that area. But Caesarea Maritima was built by Herod the Great about 25 to 13 B.C., which remember this is counting down because we're in B.C., but it was a gift to Herod from Caesar Augustus for whom the city was named. Full name was Caesarea Sebaste. It's a Greek for Augustus. Now, a few things here. Herod built the, the built a temple for the worship of Augustus and the imperial goddess Roma. Massive, massive temple. It's gone today, but the area where the temple was is still there, and you can kind of see the outline of it. It's just a huge, huge place. Um, the harbor is something that is that we're going to point out as being very. Um, it's not one of the wonders of the world, but it would, be, it would be an amazing feat to do what Herod did if you were doing it today, let alone doing it 2,000 years ago with the equipment that they had back then. But the harbor was there, and then the temple was right inside the harbor. This harbor was, was really the crown of Caesarea. As impressive as Caesarea was, that harbor was the crown, and right there, uh, as you would exit the harbor into the city... This massive temple that was built. Here's what you can see of it today. So there's the harbor. I'm going to point out to you what all of these different things are, but there's the temple. So the whole area, you see where the harbor is, and then you see that little green square right there. That's kind of a, like a little field of sorts that, that's there today, but all of that area leading up to that would have led up to the temple. And uh, here you go. Here's a picture of what that would have looked like. So as you're exiting the boat, the first thing you see is this massive, massive temple, 150 feet by 90 feet by 10 stories tall. So this was a really, really big temple, and you would have been able to see it from a long way away, especially as you're coming up to that coast, Caesarea kind of rises up just a little bit, and so it's already a little bit up in the air, and then at the top of that, they built a 10-story tall building that was dedicated to, to these gods, and of course, the imperial uh, the imperial gods, the, they, they treated them, the Caesars, as if they were gods, and so they worshiped them. This is pretty much what's left of that today. Go back to this picture here. You can see all those arches down there in the bottom. See that? And that's, that's one side of that that's there today. And, I, and the bad thing is I don't have, uh, oh, there is somebody in the picture. You see on the, there's a, that's a railing at the top of that, and that's somebody standing up up there. You see that? kind of give you a, a scale of how big this thing actually is. That was not the temple. That was the bottom part of the temple leading up to the actual building itself. So just a massive, massive thing. And he was the, Augustus Caesar was actually the first one to, the first Roman emperor to declare himself a god and demand that they worship him as a god. And, um, and so they built that temple there to honor and worship Caesar Augustus as the god. When you get up to the top there, and basically, okay, so where, where that railing is right there is what this picture is from. If you're standing there looking out over it, you can see the entire harbor. You can see all of that stuff. You see all the people that are down there on the bottom. So to kind of give you a, 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 an indication of how big this area is, it's, it's actually a very, very big area. But uh, again, all, all for the worship of these gods. And this is some of the ruins of the temple area underneath. So here's the top area that we're standing on. That's looking straight down at the bottom of that. Um, but Christ was born in that time period, and he was viewed as a competing god. So that's why uh, Herod the Great was the king who had all of the babies, the baby boys, two years old and under, killed 
uh, not only, I mean, they, they, they were trying to not only kill a, a rival king, but somebody who could also be a rival god, essentially. And so uh, he was a jealous king. He feared losing his power and his control. And uh, even though he was a master builder and did a lot of these architectural things in an amazing way, uh, he was a ruthless man. He was, not, he was not anything to be proud of as far as, you know, anything else. But a lot of believers were put to death because they refused to worship the Caesars. Um, during the Roman festivals and things like that, they would, they would take them to the theater and uh, have them fight the wild animals and all of that kind of stuff. I'm going to show you that, a little bit more of that a little bit later. But this is, a, this is an iron model or a brass model that they have there at the top. That whole temple area and the harbor and all of that stuff would have been uh, right there in that, in that blue circle. Um, the, the theater that I mentioned is, is the one here at the bottom, um, this one that's the closest to us. I'm going to mention all of these things, so I'm just pointing them out to you now. I will show them to you on a big scale again, but this is the theater. That there is Herod's palace. The thing long ways right here is uh, it's called a hippodrome, and that's where they would do all their chariot races and all of that kind of stuff. And then you had your harbor and the massive temple and all of that. And, then, and that's what I'm saying. The, the city of Caesarea actually stretched so far that they had another one near the back of it. They had another... Uh, uh, theater on the other end, just because there was so many people and so many things that they, you know, did in that way. But uh, Caesarea was the Judean governor's headquarters. It was called Judea Caput, which is Judea's head. And uh, there's a, there's kind of a model of that again, same same idea. We're going to talk a little bit more about that as we get into it. But after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, it became the capital of the Roman prophets for 600 years. And uh, so it, it was there for a long time. And uh, I mentioned this already, but at the peak, it was the largest place in Israel. I mean, really, it was, it was Herod's crown jewel. Um, he had built a lot of things, and one of them being the Temple Mount and some of those things that we'll talk about. And that was a very, very impressive thing. But Herod, Herod's baby was Caesarea. He, he put everything that he had into Caesarea when it came to uh, architecture and uh, design and money and all of that stuff. And, of course... Um, he had a lot, a lot at stake as far as that goes. And so, um, yeah, it was one of the crown jewels, not only of, the, of Herod's, but of the entire Roman Empire. And that's looking north. So if you're standing down at the bottom, looking up, okay, toward, toward uh, the north. I mean, I don't know what else you, what I could say that you're looking toward. But Dor, by the way, is just above that. Remember we talked about Dor? That was, a, it was another seaport there. Dor was just above that. But all of those things there. We're going to talk about those in a little bit. Cardo Maximus. I guess that is it. That's the name of the, the street that I was trying to remember. The aqueduct. I'm just pointing these things out because we're going to talk about those things in just a little bit. So there's, a, there's an aerial view of Caesarea Maritima today. This is, this is everything that's left. And they're, by the way, they're doing a lot more work on it now. So the, the different things that you can find there at Caesarea Maritima. Um, uh, you know, this picture is probably from 2018, 2019, somewhere in there. We were there in 23, obviously. And uh, it, it looked quite a bit different than that uh, because of how much work they've done with reconstruction and everything else. And so sometimes it's, you know, um, not that it's hard to picture what it would have looked like in Jesus' time because what they're trying to do when they do these reconstruction things is do it exactly the way that it would have been. But the ruins are not there anymore. Everything is built up, you know, because they're turning it all into a tourist place. For pe I mean, and there's thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people probably that go to these places every year. So they want, it, they want there to be something there for you to see. So when you walk into this theater, you're not seeing a bunch of ruins. You're seeing a, 
fully built theater, and it doesn't even really look that old, you know, so you have to try to remember some of these things. Now, there are a lot of places that, that do look old, but that's what it looked like then. This is what it looks like now, and um, uh, again, some different things that we're going to talk about. Let me, let me talk about the harbor, and then we'll be done for tonight, but it's a 100-acre man-made harbor, and the greatest engineering wonder of its time, it's been called. Remarkable, if judged by modern standards, and all that's left of it now is underwater, and that's why the coloring that you see there. Um, uh, but, this, but the harbor that, that came out right there, uh, and of course, all of this stuff leading up to the temple and everything else, it was all right there. This is what they think the harbor would probably have looked like back in that time. It's a reconstructive drawing. Of course, you can see the temple that's there at the top. See the hippodrome right there. On the far right side, that little part that juts out there would be Herod's palace, and there was a massive palace. So this will kind of give you an idea of just how big this, this harbor actually is. A hundred acre harbor. I mean, that's, that's big, you know. I mean, maybe compared to some of the things that we do today, a hundred acres is not that massive, but it's big. And, if, and, you know, if you think about a two acre or five acre piece of property that maybe you know about or have or something like that, and think about a hundred acres, this was big. And the entire thing was lined with buildings and, and uh, bustling with all kinds of uh, uh, things that were going on there. So... This is what made it impressive. It was constructed of cut stones as well as synthetic blocks. How do you build something that's underneath the, the water, right? How do you put cement under the water? Well, we make piers and stuff like that today. And what they do is they run something down in there, and then they fill it full of concrete, and then they pull that thing off. Herod was the first one to do that, essentially. He, he came up with what, what was called hydraulic cement. It actually hardened underwater. And so that was poured into those wood forms that were towed into position, dropped down into the water, and then poured in there, pulled out, and then the cement would actually harden as it sat in the water, which is an amazing thing. Um, it, was one of the, it was a Roman invention. It was made of lime and rubble that was mixed with volcanic ash. And a lot of that volcanic ash actually came from the area around Mount Vesuvius. And so... Another thing that really made it um, uh, a wonder, especially in its day, was the breakwater seawalls that, that supported all of the, uh, the built-up buildings that went around that harbor. And they formed a promenade for the passengers, for the loading and offloading of goods. And this is just a drawing of what somebody thinks it would have looked like. But you see how big that is, and, and all the buildings and everything else around that, none of that was there. It was not rocks that he went and built it on. He built everything by putting it down in the harbor and then building it up on top of that, which, again, by today's standards, would be pretty impressive. Now, imagine Herod doing that 2,000 years ago with no mechanical machinery or anything like that. And so um, that's why it's very impressive. This, again, small, but this is, what, this is what Josephus said about it. Having calculated the relative size of the harbor, Herod let down stone blocks into the sea to a depth of 120 feet. Most of them were 50 feet long, nine feet high, 10 feet wide, some even larger. When the submarine foundation was finished, he then laid out the mole above sea level 200 feet across. Of this, a 100-foot portion was built out to break the force of the waves and consequently was called the breakwater. The rest supported the stone wall that encircled the harbor. At intervals along it were great towers, the tallest and most magnificent of which was named Drusian after the stepson of Caesar. There were numerous vaulted chambers for the reception of those entering the harbor, and the whole curving structure in front of them was a wide promenade for those who disembarked. 
The entrance channel faced north, for in this region the, wind, the north wind always brings the clearest skies. At the harbor entrance were colossal statues, three on either side set up on columns. A massively built tower supported the column on the port side of the boats entering the harbor, whereas those on the starboard side were supported by two upright blocks of stone yoked together and higher than the tower on the other side. I know that's a lot of details, but that's, that's just, I mean, this is from somebody who was there and saw it. Josephus saw this thing, and I'm sure he was so impressed with it, that's why he decided to write about it. But the harbor was ingeniously designed to re resist the sedimentation by means of a flushing system that they had to keep all that sediment from building up in there. And, I mean, just uh, amazing marvel of engineering. And so um, these, these big ships that, that uh, were naval ships coming and going, these, these trireme galleys, which had three levels of oars, that's where the tri comes from, um, uh, tri, th three levels, but two banks of oars. So you had your two banks of oars and then your top layer, uh, top level, but 120 feet long, 200 men. I mean, that's how big this harbor was. They were able to get all of those in there, and that's where they would, they would dock. Again, this is what the harbor looked like today, looks like today. And uh, so all of that area that's left, I mean, you, you, when you're standing in Caesarea, you really can't even see it. You have to get that high above it to be able to see the, the different... Uh, colors to be able to see that, but that's where Paul was and where, where, when he embarked on his, on his journey to Rome, uh, where, he, where ultimately he was killed. And in, in Acts chapter 27 and verse number 1, and when it was determined that we should sail into Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto, the, unto one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus' band. And entering into a ship of Adramitium, we launched, meaning to sail by the coast of Asia, one Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, being with us. And the next day we touched at Sidon, and Julius courteously entreated Paul and gave him liberty to go into his friends and to refresh himself and everything else. But that's where he was, that's where he was going. He was in Caesarea when he left to go there. So uh, pretty impressive. This, is, this again, is kind of, a, of, a, of an explanation of it. But there's the breakwaters that are submerged. The harbor entrance, which you saw in the drawing, more breakwaters that are all submerged, and then that whole thing there was the harbor. This is what it looked like when they came to it in 1938. And um, actually, all of those things are underwater now, and I'll show you a picture of that. Oh, actually, no, I think I got it right here. Just a couple pictures, and then we're done. This is, see all those things lined up there in the water? Those are all pillars that were all part of the buildings that were all around that, that harbor. And uh, again, I didn't take these pictures. You can't see these unless you get high enough from the air to actually be able to look down and see it. Um, but that's, that's what the harbor looks like uh, as they were doing the excavations. Like I said, these pictures are a couple years old. doesn't look anything like that now. It's all built up, and they've, they've reconstructed a lot of different things to make it a nice little tourist attraction for people to come and, and go to. So, but we'll stop there for tonight. I've got a lot more pictures to show you of uh, some of the places where Paul actually was um, tried and where the... the, the um, the place of hearing that Paul would have stood before Festus and, and Agrippa and a lot of these others. So um, I know it's a lot, and uh, we'll finish that up when we get back together next week. All right, let's pray, and then we'll sing our song, and we'll be done for this evening. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for your goodness to us, So thank you for the opportunity we have to be able to see these things and help the Bible come alive. And not only, just, not only that, but to be able to prove that the Bible that we hold in our hands is truly the Word of God. And that everything we find in archaeology and in everything else just backs up the Bible. We thank you so much for a, a, a word of God that we can trust, that we can live by, and I pray that you'd help us to do that. 
Thank you again for all that you do for us in Jesus' name.